Hello, and welcome back to Sense and Sensitivity. I'm your host, Cece Shia, and I'm with my co-host. Hannah Stella. Hi, guys. Hey, guys. And today I am actually recording from South Africa because I am on my vacation and it has been quite a time. I feel like Hannah and I have switched places because the first time we chatted, I think you were in South Africa, right? I was in South Africa. Yes, I was. I was there twice last year for an extended period of time. My boyfriend is South African. And so I've been there a little bit. It's beautiful, right? Yeah, it is absolutely gorgeous. But there's an interesting wealth disparity that you just see everywhere because the beautiful places are so beautiful. All the rich people live in all these beautiful houses by the sea. It kind of looks like Laguna Beach. And then, of course, on the way to the wine region, you go by all these townships, which are definitely... I don't know. It's like a remnant of apartheid. And today we went to the Slave Lodge to just learn more about the history of apartheid. And it was it's just such an interesting story. And I kind of resent that school never taught us stuff like this. They would have just been like, oh, what year was this war? Right. And they never were like, well, this is actually what happened. And these are people's stories. It's so strange. Yeah, it's really horrifying. And they should have taught us more. I had a crazy experience. And I don't think this is cute. But my grandparents lived in South Africa in Cape Town in the 1970s. Have I told you about this? What? Yeah. Is this, wait, I thought they're the ones from Dallas or the other ones? The ones from Dallas. So my grandfather was a pediatric trauma surgeon and there was a birth defect that I suppose was very common in South Africa or in Southern Africa that was becoming more and more common in the United States. It's called pectus, I think. It's basically where you have the chest. It mostly happens in men, in males. It's where the chest cavity sort of caves in over the heart. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you've seen it before. It's not that uncommon. I've met people who have it. Totally. But he did a fellowship there. I think he was there for three years. Yeah, he did a fellowship there and and learned the surgery and then came back and taught it to, to people in the United States. But they really loved South Africa. And when I was a little kid, nobody, look, they were from Dallas, Texas, and it was the 90s. And I don't think they had the language to explain these things, which is not an excuse. But they would speak about South Africa and how much they loved it and how much they loved the people. And they kept in touch with their nannies and stuff. And and they had all of these South African artifacts and stuff stuff that they'd purchased there, all of this art in their home. They went back all the time. It was like a place that they were very connected to. Mm-hmm. And they would talk about South Africa all the time, but they never mentioned any of the apartheid stuff. Oh. And so I was in, I think, eighth or ninth grade, inexcusably late. And we learned about apartheid in school. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, how did nobody mention this? Like, I was like, wait, wait, wait. This is something that one of the many times we discussed South Africa and how much you guys loved it. I think you should have brought up that they were doing this shit because this was not fine. It's really horrifying. And the legacy of apartheid is very, very clear in South Africa. It's something that I don't feel like I'm not... South African. I've been there. I've done a lot of research. I'm trying to like learn, but it's something that's very difficult to like talk about on the internet, but then it also feels just from the place where I am, but it also feels inappropriate not to talk about it. It's something that anytime I'm there, I really struggle with because it's true. There's massive wealth disparity. 
between the races. And then there's also massive wealth disparity in terms of just in general, the wealthy people there, some of them are also Black Native Africans. Yeah. Extremely, extremely wealthy. And the people who live in poverty live in a poverty that I don't think most Americans have experienced or witnessed. It's on a different level, in my opinion, from anything that I've seen in nations close to America that have a lot of poverty. Yeah, I think what was really fascinating, so I did get some recommendations from friends who had gone right. And we ended up getting brunch at this wonderful restaurant on Potluck Club. And it was such a great meal, but it was a very stark difference going from where the location that we're staying, which I think is more downtown, to the restaurant. And then we were like, oh my God, just look at the different demographic. The demographic shifts are pretty crazy if you notice it. And then that's when we were like, well, because I am vlogging some of South Africa for a YouTube vlog right now. And I was like, well, I feel like I can't not mention all of this because this is as much of going to South Africa and should be as much of the discussion as just the parts that I do think we see oftentimes on social media or that we see in travel guides that are catered to Americans, right? There's a lot, like you said, it's hard to talk about on the internet because you're like, well, I should mention it. But also, I'm not 100% confident that I'm the best person to mention it. But mentioning is probably better than just glossing over it altogether. And the history is quite fascinating in that So the Dutch, who were the Afrikaners, who imposed apartheid. Mm -hmm. There's two groups of white South Africans. They're either Dutch or they're British. And the Dutch people are Afrikaans, and they speak a simplified Dutch called Afrikaans. And they were the people who were in power during apartheid. And they live mostly on the west coast of South Africa. And the East Coast is more British people. I'm not saying the British people were not colonizers. They obviously also were. And I'm not even saying they didn't support the apartheid government. Most of them did. I'm saying that it was just Afrikaans was the group. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I didn't even realize, I never studied it in school. We just never talked about apartheid at all, which is heinous to me now. I, For all of world history, I just don't even remember what we learned about a lot about the Sumerians, I guess, even the prehistory area. And I think the interesting thing I learned today about the British white people and then the Afrikan was that the Afrikan kind of started their own political groups, movements, because they felt oppressed by the British colonists. So it was like this interesting cognitive dissonance almost where the Afrikaans were oppressing everyone else, the colored people, the black people, but they wanted to also escape the oppression of the British colonists. I did not realize that there was layers to this. In my head, I always just thought, oh, of course, the white people oppressing the black, but the white people who were kind of being oppressed by the British, then oppressing others. So very interesting power trajectory and structure. It's very multi-layered. And I want to mention also, just because I don't want you to get in trouble, Cece just said the colored. I know we don't use that word in America. In South Africa, because of apartheid, that is an ethnic group where there were a lot of mixed race people. And then for generations, they were only allowed to basically marry each other. And they still have a very strong community in their own culture. And those people are called colored. It's race. 
Yeah, no, thank you for clarifying that. I feel like I spent so much time in the museum that I'm just adopting the terminology that I saw in the museum, which totally because you had to register what your race were. And there were three races. It was white, black and colored. And a lot of the colored people were mixed race or from Southeast Asian countries like Indonesia. And yeah, just very enlightening trip overall and very, very excited to explore more of it. But yeah, it is so beautiful. But also, I think I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that you do just see poverty of the levels that we don't see in America, which is, it just made me very, very grateful for (laughs) all my privileges. And I don't know, when I complain about little things, I'm just like, man, what am I really complaining about? I know, it's a very interesting, beautiful country. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. very cool stuff and amazing culture, but the legacy of apartheid and also of colonization is very present. I think to the extent that we're taught about it in America, a lot of the time it's like, but then there was Mandela and he fixed it and now it's fixed. Yeah. You're like, and now everything is okay. Thank you, Mandela. Right. I mean, he certainly did more than his share. He was an incredible figure, but unfortunately, you just can't undo these things that quickly or maybe at all. I don't know. It's a tough thing. Yeah. And it's always shocking how recent these things are too, right? Because apartheid only ended, I mean, we were alive, Mm -hmm. barely, but we were alive when this ended. So oftentimes, I think in the year of 2023, it's easy to be like, oh, so much has changed quality, blah, blah, blah. But does it only really take 20 years to undo all of this? I really doubt it. I mean, even for women going to college, right? Like I remember when I was in college, they had the 40 year anniversary of letting women into college. And I was like, this is yay. But also 40 years is not that much at all. Ugh. Okay, so that's sorry to go on a rant about South Africa. Part of Harvard was 40 years. At Yale, it was in 2012, I think they were like, oh, it's the 40-year anniversary of being able to let women in. I actually didn't realize that women couldn't go to Yale until 40 years ago. Yeah, well, I went to college 10 years ago, so now 50 years ago. So I think they recently had their 50-year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like we've come so far, and yet the fact that women couldn't even go to Yale until 50 years ago, we have a long ways to go. Yes. It's wild. Yeah. Wait, but Hannah, how is New York? How is everything in the old hometown? New York has been great. I have seen a lot of people, done a lot of cool stuff. My friend Mackenzie just had her 30th birthday. Her birthday was in February, but she just had her party and it was pop star themed. So that was really fun. Oh my God. I love that. What did you dress up as? So you could dress up as a pop star specifically. She dressed as Shania Twain, mm-hmm. or you could dress as how you would dress if you were a pop star. And so I went that route and just wore like a hot pink mini dress. Oh, I love that. Would you just perform under Hannah Stella or would you have a stage name? Everybody thinks, well, not anymore, but everybody used to assume Hannah Stella was a stage name anyway. So I think I would just lean into that. Yeah. But I cannot sing. I wouldn't even do karaoke. I found out when we were there, there was karaoke too, which was very fun. But so many people were so good. And it was because it was a joint birthday party with her best friend from middle school, who I guess is either a professional performer or works in theater. And so a lot of their friends are actually semi-professional or professional singers. I think if you're a Broadway actress, you're also a professional singer. Your job's to sing too. Yeah. Did you not have a go-to song that you're like, okay, it doesn't take that much singing. I'm going to do it. 
So my go-to is the <laughs> I can wrap olive cleaning up my closet. <gasps> okay. <laughs> oh my god, I love this. One time I, I just want to yeah, hear that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Not next episode, but the episode after. Prepare for the class. <laughs> We'll see. Yeah. And then everything else has been good. We thought that our dinghy, which is the small boat off the back of the big boat was stolen. But I think that actually it may have come untied, though I was assured that the knot it was tied with was an impossible knot to ever come untied. Whoever did your sailor's knot needs to go back and take sailor's knot lessons. I agree. A miracle happened and it came untied even though it was impenetrable. And we think it washed up on an island, but the island is owned by Carnival Cruise Lines. And so there's no phone number. So I think we're going to get it back, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Hopefully no one wrote in asking for advice on how to get property back from Carnival Cruise Island. So I know I need advice, but we're, we're going to give some today. Yeah. So this is the advice episode, guys. Thank you guys so much for writing in in DMing us, we picked some that I think are really good discussion topics. And we really appreciate you guys even giving us that kind of privilege to give you our thoughts. And at the end of the day, that is just it. It is our thoughts and take it, take everything with a grain of salt. But yeah, thank you guys for writing in and let's get to it. All right. Thank you. Let's get into it. Okay, let's get into some of your questions. Starting off, how do you know that you found the one? Yeah, this is such a good question because when I was 10, I was obsessed with the idea of the one. I actually Googled, can 10-year-olds fall in love? Because I so deeply wanted to believe that love was possible when you're 10. I now think it's possible, but it's like a different iteration of love, right? And I was obsessed with this idea of the one and went through many series of thinking someone was the one and getting my heart broken and then having to start over until I got to a point where I was like, you know what? The one doesn't exist. It's just timing. It's just luck. It's just being in the right place at the right time and you both looking for the same thing. And then I met Nathaniel and I am a believer in the one again, which (laughs) I hate admitting that. I know. I know. But I think the moment that I realized that he was the one, it wasn't early on in the relationship. I think it's very hard to figure that out early on. I think it has to happen a bit in maybe a few months, maybe a year, Mm -hmm. where you realize that no matter what, they're there for you in an unconditional manner. And it seems simple to say, but I do think very few people are there for you in an unconditional manner. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are looking for one moment to ditch you or leave you to yourself. And that's just most friendships even. I don't know. What was your experience like with the one? I feel like I'm just rambling about my how much I love Nathaniel right now, which is not interesting. It's sweet. I don't know if I think there is a one. I think that there are certain people that we have an emotional, physical, chemical connection with where we're willing to put in the work to make it happen. And then whenever you find one of those people where you know you're willing to get through the hard times because everybody's going to have them, then it's a matter of deciding if you have similar goals and aspirations and if you can live with their 
eccentricities because everybody on earth is annoying as fuck. And you have to just be like, okay, can I deal with this person? And that sounds that sounds very pessimistic, but I don't mean it that way. I just mean I think it's about making sure that you have, I suppose I'll call it passion, the level of passion that you need to sustain a relationship. And then don't think, am I excited about the wedding? Think, can I do this for 40 years? Because if we're talking about the one, I assume you're talking about, do I want to marry my boyfriend? Can you do what he's doing for 40 years? And not that you have to follow him, but you have to find a life together and follow each other. And do you have compatible enough aspirations that that will work? That's my feeling. Yeah, I think it's so much how do you enjoy the day-to-day and whether the day-to-day living, not just under the specter of the wedding, is exciting to you. And if it's something that you are excited for to wake up and do mundane things like doing the laundry or figuring out bills or going grocery shopping. I think if you can be with someone whose values also align with you, of course, that's like step one, right? It's I think even if you have the passion and I've been in many relationships where there was a lot of passion, but no alignment of values. And those Mm -hmm. just end up being, they feel like the one in the moment, but they are actually 100% not the one. Or maybe they're the one big catastrophe (laughs) that would have happened later on. But alignment of values as number one, passion to kind of get everything kickstarted. And then it is just being excited about doing the mundane. And is this someone that you can maybe raise kids with, take care of pets with? Is this someone that you would, even when your cats are vomiting, you both are like, oh, they're so cute. And also don't feel resentment about the other person, about who's going to clean it up. You just do it together as a team. And I think that feeling of doing something together as a team, it's hard to explain until you kind of experience that. But when you do experience it, You just look back at all of your other relationships and think, oh my God, I can't believe I thought that was the one. Totally. I think that makes sense. And I think if you're asking because you're at a place in your relationship where you're deciding if you're going to do this for the rest of your life or not, honestly, you're never going to have a super clear answer. And the people who say, I just always knew... I don't think they're lying. I think that some people romanticize the feelings that they have in their head and that's totally fine. But I think it's a fiction, the idea that you're sure that it's always going to be perfect and always going to work. That's not the goal and that's not reality. That's what I think about that. For sure. And even though I love Nathaniel, I think he is the one. I also think there's multiple the ones that could have been possible in my life depending on how things go. And there are other alternate universities out there with someone else and just as happy and thinking that they're the one. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the healthy way of thinking about it. Okay. Second question. Do you feel your career aspirations have impacted your aspirations to have children? And I appreciate this follow-up a lot, which is, I know it's only asked of women and that is so annoying, but I really value your opinion. This is a tough question for me to answer. Because for a long time, I didn't have super strong career aspirations. And I felt more ambivalent about children than I do now, although I actually am sort of re-entering a phase of a little bit of ambivalence. But I think for me, thinking that I want to have children now, I certainly, getting back into the workforce in a more earnest way, have been very focused on having flexibility in my job. And I think part of that is I lived such an unstructured life for so long that it feels impossible to me. I just don't think that I could right now at this moment get 
a 60 hour a week in office job. First of all, I don't think anybody would, would hire me. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I don't know. Don't say that, Hannah. There You'd be surprised. Are desperate. No, I don't think anyone would hire me. And even if they did, I think I would get fired or quit so quickly because it's so far <laughs> away from what I'm used to. That might be true. But I, I do think I like having flexibility and control over the structure of my day. And I do think that for me, part of that is if I have kids in the future, I would like to have something set up where I'm still working, ideally writing books and doing this, and then can still also be involved, be around, pick my schedule. What about you? I think your aspirations in life will always impact your aspirations to have children, right? Because Mm -hmm. even if your aspiration in life is to be a homemaker, which I'm not going to lie, is a really hard job, even in dealing with the bills, et cetera, arranging vet visits. And these are for cats, right? It's just more stuff to deal with all the time. And I can't even imagine what having children will be like when you have to care about what schools to send them. You have to maybe arrange for tutors, all that. Like those are hard jobs. And even if being a homemaker is your aspiration, that will impact your life and how and when you have children and also what kind of partner you have to look for in order to create an environment for children that will be able to give your children everything that you kind of want them to. So I really hate this false dichotomy between career and children because I think that's often something that we are told as women exists. And I think it's more like there is always just a trade-off between your time in life Mm -hmm. and children take time. And we can't, I mean, we just can't avoid that. So I do think that certain careers though, the ones that start off with the 60 hour weeks, the hundred hour weeks, right? Like my friends who are medical residents, they cannot live their life just having children at any time. Even in law, There are some times that are better than others to have children, although by and large, if you go to a firm that really cares about supporting women in the workplace, at my old firm, people did tell me, hey, you shouldn't plan your career around in children. You shouldn't wait to make partner and then have children, just like have children whenever you want. And I found that really, really reaffirming of the fact that life comes first and then your work can kind of flow around it. But there are firms where I did talk to partners who said that they would never think about children until they were sure they were going to make partner. And that is just, it's kind of a shifting landscape of norms. So being cognizant of the fact that having children takes time and time requires trade-offs in anything. It just requires a little bit more nuance in moving around and navigating and being aware of what norms you've landed yourself into. And I think we're in the, I mean, it's 2023, right? I think we're at a part in our societal development where you can both have children and have a career at the same time. Totally. I think so. I think it's about the balance with your partner. And It's an interesting thing, I think, about jobs like medicine and law and stuff that were traditionally higher earning and required a lot of schooling and long hours. I think a lot of those jobs were set up to pay so that the family could be a single income family. And with inflation and fluctuation in income and the sort of location that a lot of those, less so in medicine, but law, you really kind of have to be in New York, Chicago, LA if you're doing big law on that level or in a major city. So it's it's interesting because it's kind of shifted because unless you are a partner, it's actually maybe not realistic to have children on a single income in one of those 
careers in those places. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's just true given inflation and just the cost of living in some of these cities. But again, I think that's not tied to necessarily pursuing a career. It's trying to attribute what is happening globally to, and then looking at its impact on these individual career paths. I agree. It's tough. All right. This is one of our longest ones. So I'm going to read it. I want to start by saying that my sisters are the most important people to me in the world, and I love them more than I love myself, and that's a lot. (laughs) I'm the middle of three girls, and we would match birth order stereotypes to a T. I'm almost done with my gap year after graduating college, and I'm starting graduate school in the fall. This past year has been the best year of my life, and I've grown in ways I cannot fathom. I started going to therapy, the gym, making genuine friends, etc. I moved to the same city as my big sister to spend time with her and and I spend time with her and her friends often. My older sister is in law school and supposed to finish them in May. She probably won't finish all of her requirements, but will still be able to graduate and has a career lined up. My point is she appears to be the perfect older child, but she's under severe stress. A week ago, she admitted to self-harm. She's also an unaware alcoholic and has ruined many friendships. My mom, a few of her friends, and I have all had serious conversations with her about alcoholism and how we want her to get better before hitting rock bottom. Her other friends have come to me about the situation saying they don't want to deal with it anymore. It makes me sad and I never know what to say. I also have a younger sister who attends a popular party school and I am sometimes concerned about her drinking as well. My older sister has taken over being a second mother to my younger sister and rants about her over drinking as a teenager. My younger sister and I are really close, which is in direct contrast to my rocky relationship with my older sister. My older sister has a large friend group with many guys in her law school class, and like I said, we all hang out often. Over the past few years, my sister has developed a crush on each of the guys and has been known to make an aggressive move toward them when she's blacked out. Over two years ago, she had a crush on one of her friends, Jack. Over the past three months or so, Jack and I have become very close friends. He has come to me for emotional support because I'm one in the friend group that is out of the legal world and not someone's significant other. Three of the other people in the friend group have brought up to my sister that Jack and I seem to fit together well and have many similarities. They did not know about the previous heart-to-heart conversations and subtle flirting that has happened between us, so it was affirming for me for them to bring it up. When a third friend said this to my sister and I together, she finally admitted that she wouldn't want me to date Jack because she is jealous that he didn't like her. She also said, and this is what pisses me off enough to write you guys this long ass essay, that because we are so similar, he must only like me because I am quote unquote skinny now. When I discussed this with my mom, grandmother, and therapist, they all said that my sister and I are not similar other than basic sister things. I will say we used to be more similar before I spent so much time working on myself, but it really threw me off when she brought up how I looked and attributed that as the only reason he would like me. She ended the conversation crying. If I didn't seriously see a connection with this guy, I would never even consider asking my sister to make a compromise by letting me date her friend. To tie this up, Jack and I are separately moving to a different city than when we live in our state in May, while my sister will be moving to a third city. Jack and I have discussed the possibility of waiting until we move to get things going in our relationship. I guess my question is how to navigate the issues that are going on with my sister regarding alcohol and self-harm. And is it fair for her to call girl code over a boy that she liked years ago? Am I allowed to date him when I move in three months? So there's basically two separate questions, how to deal with her sister's personal issues with alcoholism, self-harm, and kind of harming her friendships, and then also the ethics of the relationship with, with this guy, Jack. What do you think? Yeah, that's a long one. So I will say that I am the worst at trying to 
envision sibling dynamics just because I'm an only child. And for better or for worse, it means that I have never really had to deal with sibling dynamics as often. But I do appreciate being concerned for friends about what they're doing with their lives and also not knowing how to interact with people that maybe your friends have had crushes on before. So to take it in two parts, right? First is how to interact and relate to your sister regarding her personal issues with alcohol and self-harm. I think that's a really tough one to take on by yourself. So obviously, I think a conversation probably needs to happen at some point. And it will just be a question of talk to your therapist, maybe talk to your younger sister, talk to your family about it. Because if it's something that you're noticing, it's probably something that everyone is noticing and concerned about. And I'm not saying all confront her, because that would be seen as an intervention and might make her just recede into herself. But more like you're not handling this alone. You're doing this with a team, with a team of your family who all really care about your sister. So trying to kind of figure out what everyone thinks and think through this together, I think would be really helpful. But again, I don't have siblings. So I'm really curious what you think, Hannah. Yeah. In regards to the sibling thing, I think it's really tough because you feel a responsibility and it sounds like you've also integrated into her friend group and that she's also a person who causes a lot of problems in the friend group. I think what I would do if it were one of my sister's I would probably bring in, I would almost certainly, with regards to the self-harm stuff, bring in my mom, even though everybody here is an adult. I think that sometimes with those things, you need somebody who feels like an authority figure, especially with some of what your sister's going through. I think that she probably needs kind of an authority type to step in. And also just to have somebody who's serious and understanding to help you confront her about that. With the alcoholism and general, over-the-line chaotic behavior, I think I would express to her my concerns and also, as Cece said, sort of talk to other people in your life who you trust and know are on your sister's side and make sure everybody's on the same page. But then I personally would have that discussion with her as something personal between the two of us, if that makes sense. I would probably say I think that this drinking is a little bit too much. You are constantly coming to me and telling me these stories. We have mutual friends. I'm moving away in a few months. And I think that for me, I would come up with concrete ways I was willing to support her. And I would say, I'm happy. I know, for example, you can go to AA meetings with people, even if you're not quitting drinking. I would say, I'm happy to go to AA with you, or I'm happy to find a therapist for you, or I'm happy to drive you to this program whatever you think might help your sister and that you're willing to do, I would put that offer. But I would also say whether you take any of these options or whether this is just a phase you're going through and you're able to cut back on your own, I can't be around this all the time. And so if this is going to keep happening, I'm going to have to pull back in terms of the amount that I hang out with this friend group or that I'm around you, which really sucks. But I think that's what I would do. Because in my family and with my siblings personally, I can't control any of their behavior and they can't control mine. And it's about just finding the healthy balance of what relationship you can have. And I think that sometimes when you set that boundary and take a step back from these constantly hanging out type of interactions, 
you don't want to push her to a rock bottom, but it might make her realize that you're not just talking shit and being dramatic, that this is a real concern for you. And then what about Jack? Can she date Jack? Oh God, the Jack question is, you have to think about what is the worst case scenario for dating Jack, right? Which is if you date Jack, you might be ruining your relationship with your sister. She might just be so hurt by it that you have no relationship. She cuts off contact with you. And if you are willing to accept that as a worst case scenario, as an outcome, then I think pursue this relationship with Jack because it seems like you're serious about it. You guys might make each other happy and you're willing to accept the worst case scenario. Of course, I think the more difficult part is if you're not willing to accept this worst case scenario. And then you kind of have to think a lot more about whether your future with Jack is worth potentially risking a relationship with your sister, right? And that could just be maybe dating Jack on the down low in this new city for a little while, making it really, really discreet. Just explore a little bit more if it's even something that you want. Because oftentimes, I think we might be mesmerized by someone in one certain environment, but then we see them in another. And then it's just like, oh, I don't know, the spark isn't there or the things that I thought were attractive are just no longer attractive. So moving away in the ways that you guys are going to with you and Jack to one city and your sister to another one is kind of a blessing in disguise and gives you a little bit more runway and time to figure things out because you don't need to tell your sister on date one with Jack that this is happening, right? You do have time and maybe it'll just not be anything and you don't ever have to talk about it again. Yeah, I actually totally agree. The only thing I would add is I just generally agree. You know your sister, you know how upset she'll be. She's going to spin it as a betrayal, all of this stuff. And so it depends how serious you are about Jack, if you're willing to take those risks. I don't think you'd be wrong to do it. But I also think if you're going to break up, why have the drama? Though, of course, on the other side of that, you don't want your sister being able to dictate everything that you do all of the time. But with you moving to a new city and a different city than she's going to be in, All of the guys who you're meeting there who are not Jack are going to be people that she doesn't know and probably would only meet in the context of that you're already in a relationship. The other thing that I would just add to Cece's point is that I think that sometimes so you and Jack have been having these talks. There's probably a little bit of sexual tension building. And I think, look, I don't know. I'm not saying this is true. There's some chance that you're just meant to be and you'll be happy forever. And there's another chance that you have this sort of hidden a little bit relationship with a lot of tension building. And I don't want to tell you to keep something a secret from your sister, but I would be in this new city for long enough to know that you actually like Jack and aren't just excited about this kind of forbidden thing that you want before you commit to it and put it out in the open. Because I do think that there are things about this scenario right now that might make it seem more appealing. Whereas if you'd been able to date out in the open over this time that you've been becoming good friends, you might have already broken up. And most people break up. That's not bad. That's fine. Yeah. And like you said, everyone is really annoying. And it's just a matter of, can you deal with annoyingness? And sometimes the annoying parts aren't obvious to you when you're in this secret environment. But the moment you're able to 
be together, you're just like, oh my God, what did I do? And I know you don't watch Euphoria, but this is totally a plot line from Euphoria as well, right? Where Sydney Sweeney's character ends up hooking up. Oh, I'm so sorry for anyone who... Well, Spoiler! It was season two, guys. If you're not caught caught up by now... But Sydney Sweeney's character ends up hooking up with her best friend, like best, best friend's on-off boyfriend, and it just blows up their friend group. Yeah, so I think this is kind of similar where, I mean, I'm not saying that you guys are the characters in Euphoria, but the plot line is something that we as humans deal with a lot and think about a lot because there is this constant issue of, do I go for what I want in the moment or do I respect the storied history? And sometimes the answer is to go after what you want because that totally. thing will make you happier. But sometimes it's not. And it's just you need to get to a point where you have enough information to make that decision. Yeah, I agree. I think to me, it's not really about whether your sister is being reasonable. It's about you know who she is. You know that she's dramatic. Is this the line you want to draw in the sand? And even if you don't like Jack that much, I think there's a valid argument to just be like, yeah, I want to date him because she's literally had a crush on every guy she's ever met. And she can't just say that every guy she calls and I'm just going to do this to prove to her that you're not the boss of me. If that's what you decide, that's fine. But I just think I think you should ask yourself those questions and think through it and decide what you want to do. Yeah. And going back to, I think we talked about a little bit about toxic friendships in our second episode, right? And you can have toxicity in sister relationships as well. You can love them so much, but they can also be toxic in your life because they try to dictate everything that you do. And that's just not healthy. Mm-hmm. Totally. Okay. The next question is a little bit more lighthearted. How do you curate a wardrobe that excites you, but also is practical enough to meet your everyday needs? All right. I think the first thing is to be realistic about what your day-to-day life is like in terms of what you're wearing, just with your job and, and everything. Some people have a lot of events where they need to wear a lot of cocktail dresses. Some people still wear suits to work and some people have very casual things. And to make sure that most of what you buy fits into that. And then I would say... My other advice is whenever you're adding personality into your wardrobe, look at what you really love and not at trend cycles. Don't avoid buying something that's trendy if you love it. But instead of buying the thing that's trendy, which is not going to suit your needs for a very long time, buy something you want. You know what I mean? If you love a bright green color, buy a bright green cashmere sweater and you'll love that for years and it's a little unique and a little bit different versus buying things that are on trend all of the time. What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree that curating your wardrobe around the timeless pieces is really important. So I gravitate a lot towards basics initially. So the pants, the solid colored stuff and the sheath dresses and On top of that, maybe every season do buy a few things that are a bit more trendy so you can put them in when you want. I'm also, and this kind of depends on where you live, but I'm also a huge fan of renting pieces. Mm -hmm. So I love Rent the Runway. And when I first started work, I realized I was buying three new dresses a month for work because I just liked to shake it up. But then I was like, this is untenable. I can't just buy a thousand dollars worth of dresses every month. This is not good. So I started renting some of the more fun work dress pieces. And that ended up being a great save for my wallet because I think it's what 150 a month to like rent 
four to eight pieces. And that just was a good way to still be excited about your closet, but not spend a bunch on something that is of the moment and Mm -hmm. that you might not have for years and years. I think that makes perfect sense. Next one. (laughs) I just found out I am pregnant and I'm thrilled. For context, I'm 27 and I just recently realized I wanted to be a mom in the last two or so years. Most of my friends are either still single or they're also married, but they don't want kids. I'm nervous about sharing my pregnancy with them and fear that they won't be as excited as I am or at least won't be able to pretend for me. How can I celebrate my life milestones without worrying about how people will react? Is that even possible? I would love to hear y'all's thoughts on this. I think this is a tough one. <laughs> I think you should just go ahead and celebrate your life milestone. This is big. And I think anyone who understands what life stages could entail would be thrilled for you, even if they themselves are not there yet. And I guess as context, I mean, I'm not married yet. I don't have kids yet. And a lot of my high school friends, they got married earlier. They have kids already. And I think it's still very, very possible to be thrilled for someone who is just earlier in a life stage Mm -hmm. than you are at. And I don't think you should have to think about how they will react to your good news. That's a little bizarre. So I I understand what you're saying, but I also understand her question because even though you shouldn't have to worry about how your friends are going to react, I think as women or as people or whatever, we have this vision of these sort of life moments, particularly with pregnancy and marriage and stuff, that it kind of creates this sisterhood bonding. I think it can be really difficult to like want this moment where you announce you're pregnant and all of your friends are going to be overjoyed and start buying you baby stuff and doing all of these things for you. And to be in a social situation where your friend group isn't in places in their own lives where they're going to react that way. I think it can still be disappointing even so. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In the same way that I suppose we don't know what other people are going through. We don't know where they are in their lives. Maybe they're dealing with infertility issues. I see commentary about this online a lot like, oh, I am struggling with IVF or infertility and Mm -hmm. I hate the pregnancy announcements on social media. I can understand that. But at the same time, I don't know. I'm not convinced that that's something that maybe it's more of like a tailoring of your own expectations if things don't work out rather than feeling like you need to refrain from announcing your own joy or being as totally, I totally agree. I think that for helpful advice, I would say give your friends a chance because I think you might be surprised and also give different friends a chance, if that makes sense. Maybe your best, best friend is single and doesn't want to be or is married and doesn't want kids. And her immediate reaction will be like a disappointing worry about how much your life is going to change and therefore your friendship is going to change when you have a baby. But I'm sure that there are people who are in your life who are your friends you aren't as close to who will have the reaction. And this will be an opportunity for you guys to become very close. So I think Practical advice of one, be open to that. And two, I think figure out some ways with your husband or your family or something to celebrate these milestones for yourself. Of course, you want the sisterhood aspect, and I hope that you have that, and I think that you will. Oh, actually, that's my other advice, especially if you're in a city. 
you can join, at least in New York, and I'm sure other cities have them, you can join a mom group based on your due date and your neighborhood and everything. And you can kind of find a tribe there. But I would say try and find some ways that you and your husband and your family are going to celebrate this so that there's not as much pressure on other people's reactions that you can't control. Yeah. And I think if a friend does seem to respond pretty poorly, that's a good segue into talking about what's going on with them. And maybe it's worry about their own lives or worry about how your relationship will change. And either way, talking through those issues with them will make you guys closer. I know I was really happy when some of my friends had babies because I was like, great, now I can ask someone else about all of this because there's just so much in pregnancy, et cetera, that I am baffled by. And it's good to have that person to be a resource and someone to help guide you through it. So for looking, I think there's a lot that you can use as fodder to strengthen your relationship, even if the initial reaction from certain friends is not what you would hope for. Totally. Okay. Next question. How would you deal with living in a house your partner owns that you could not afford? So I just wouldn't personally really have an issue with this. I would say, especially if my partner, husband, boyfriend, whatever, purchased it before I was involved, or if we were boyfriend and girlfriend or whatever, and they purchased it only in their name, I think the number one way I would deal, and this is people are going to get so mad at me, I would not, do not pay rent for a house that your boyfriend owns. That is crazy. That's insane. Don't, why are you paying for some man's equity? Sure. If you want to buy groceries or something, go for it. But he's decided to make this investment. And in general, I just, I don't know. I just don't have that hang up. I think that you want to be humble and not entitled and not sort of nasty or sort of let it get to your head that you're living in this place, particularly if it's a newer relationship and it's something that can just go away. But I think in sort of the same sense, a house is a house, right? Just because the countertop is like an imported marble instead of that, what is that plastic stuff called? Oh, laminate? Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) Sorry. You're like, I've never seen laminate in my life. (laughs) Do you know one time I asked somebody if Sargento was a hard cheese? What? Sargento, I guess it's like a brand. Isn't it a brand? Yeah. I was like, what What are you talking about? I was like, I've never heard about that. Is it a hard, similar to a Parmesan? Oh my God, you've never bought Sargento's? No. What about Applegate? That's a bacon brand. No, Applegate Organics? I think it's also a cheese brand. I've been to Murray's. Anyway, (laughs) I love McDonald's, Diet Coke. Back to the house thing. Yeah, I just think a home is a home. And you don't want to get this affectation of false modesty where you're just like, oh, well, of course, we need to have all of this. But I think that just feel comfortable living in it as your space and don't pay for stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting because on one hand, I totally understand this idea of why should you feel guilty about living in a house that your partner invited you to live in, right? We all provide different things in a partnership and presumably they think that you're providing enough in this partnership to invite you to live in their home and let's not devalue non-economic work, right? I think that's always, even if it's like emotional support, let's not devalue that. And 
I'm like, yeah, you know what? Don't pay rent. You don't want to also second guess your partner's judgment or decision because that would be offensive as well, right? They've decided that they want you to live in their house, blah, blah, blah. You should just respect that. So I totally get that. But on the other hand, I feel that same tension where right now my fiance and I, we split rent. We've split rent ever since we lived in this apartment together. And one of the things that made me so irrationally mad sometimes was after I quit when a lot of, not a lot, but like enough people on the internet would be like, oh, well, now you're just living off of his money or was the ability to quit your job contingent upon the fact that he would support you. And even though I know there would be no shame if that were the case, and I would just be in a very privileged, blessed position were that to happen, I still do not ever really want to admit that that is the case. And I don't know why that is. And I feel like maybe it is a symptom of having toiled away in the economic spheres for so long that there's a certain hang up that I have about this. So I don't know. I get this as well. And I'd probably self-talk the way that Hannah just did and the way that I just did. Because like rationally, I know that we should not discount non-economic labor and non-economic input. But at the same time, I'm still paying half rent and I probably will for the foreseeable future. And my fiance has even been so nice that he's been like, if you want me to take on more economic burden, I will. But something about it prevents me from letting him. When a man offers to pay for more stuff for you, you say yes. And even if you could afford it, you just put that money right in the bank. You invest it. Because that is what's better. I don't know. I just don't have this hang up. I didn't take a job when my ex-husband and I got together to go to Europe with him for this summer. And everybody was like, Hannah, like you're so stupid. What are you going to do if you go to Europe with this guy that you barely know and then you guys break up? And I'm like, I'm going to spend the summer in Europe, which I wasn't going to do if I was selling legal services, which was the job. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not lacking in empathy for it. I hope it doesn't come across that way. I just don't have this hang up. No, I think you shouldn't have this hang up. And I think none of us should have this hang up. But I do think when women started moving into the workforce, I feel like we adopted much more economic conceptions of labor. And we're now just seeing, I think that's it in me, right? Is that I have adopted very masculine, very traditional conceptions of labor such that I am almost ashamed. And I think it's just a shame associated with my own contributions to society, to relationship that I have to work through. Even though I agree, I think in an ideal world, we should all not feel guilty about any of this. Totally. All right. Question for Cece. This is actually, we've made an amalgamation of a few different questions, but question for Cece. You mentioned in the first episode that you previously had your whole life planned out. I'm the same way and sometimes feel defeated that it hasn't panned out that way, but I know it's all for the best. What advice would you give to someone who is stuck on what could have been and not what could be? Yeah. And we got so many questions that were variations on this theme as well, such as how do we know if our current career path is the right one or someone made a career move and am now unhappy and is now scared of making a change again, or just this idea of how do you even own up and make these big adult decisions for yourself about what you do and also owning any changes about it. So I think what has helped me a little is just realizing that there is no point in your life where you will get to it and you'll be like, oh, I'm done. I've made it. Everything will be okay from now on. 
You can get married and that doesn't mean your relationship is going to be okay. You can have a kid. It doesn't mean that you guys will stay together forever. You can get your dream job and it doesn't mean that you will be both economically and professionally fulfilled for the rest of your life. And the sooner you stop putting your hopes on these things and these achievements and steps, the sooner you can work on living a life that you're satisfied with, which is unfortunately kind of boring. It's kind of like what we talked about with the one. How do you know it's the one? You don't. You don't really. You just do it every day. And hopefully every day you shift it in a position and a direction that you feel is more aligned with what you want. And I always think about the counterfactuals as well. I still have this imagination in my head of what would have happened if I had stayed with my high school ex. But it doesn't do you any good to think about that. And, you know, it's fun to fantasize about sometimes and fun to think about what could have been if you had taken another job, if you not left your job, not broken up with this person. But the sooner you live in your life now and view it as maybe the longing is due to some kind of dissatisfaction with your life now, in which case recognizing that and then figuring out how to change your life right now in the direction so that there is more satisfaction. That's number one. But sometimes it's just, I don't know, we're humans and we'll always kind of second guess ourselves and life is complicated and being happy is so much harder than I thought it would be in life that you can recognize maybe it's an unhealthy or unproductive thing to think about, even if your brain naturally goes there. Yeah. Just to add my own little bit of a spin on this, I just think I would remember that whatever didn't pan out, you are not comparing your life now to what your life would have been had it panned out. You're comparing your life now to this image in your head of what your life would have been if it panned out. And it's very unlikely that those are the same thing. And so I would think about the things that make you happy in your life, think about the things that make you unhappy, and try and work towards fixing. Everybody's always going to have some unhappiness in their lives, but work toward fixing the unhappy things and focusing on the happy things and finding that peace. But yeah, the life that you are not in that you envisioned is not necessarily the same one. I actually heard kind of a crazy story about this years ago when I was in college. What was it? This woman that I knew that was much older than me was actually about our age now. had gone to Harvard undergrad. And one of the women who was in her class had said, this is my plan. I'm going to Harvard undergrad, going to Harvard medical school. I'm going to have twins. I think she had decided in college that she was going to have twins via IVF when she was 28 years old. She was going to be a pediatrician. She was going to live in New York City on the Upper West Side. And she was going to marry somebody that she met during medical school who was also in New York City. And then she was 32 or 33 years old. And she had done all of those things exactly according to the plan. And then she had a complete mental breakdown and quit her job and left her family because she was like, okay, I did it. But I was always just checking the box. I'm not saying that's what everybody's doing, but it's it's also life's about experiences. Yeah. And I think especially when your plan for your life is spanning so many years, right? I am not the same person that I was at 22. When I planned my wedding at 25, I was going to have kids before 30. And I do think if that had happened, I would have probably been happy in a way because I checked off things that I planned for myself, but also like this woman, totally unhappy because I don't think those are the things that I would have actually wanted for myself as a 28-year-old, as a 30-year-old. And adhering to your 
old plan for yourself is the same as, I don't know, fulfilling your parents' dream for what you do or for your kids or all that. You're still, even though it's yourself, you're living someone else's life. And you can only live your own life. And the more you align your life with what you want in that moment, who you are in that moment, who could be very, very different from who you were when you were 18, that's what leads to this inner peace. And you could be a really different person at 22 than at 32, like I know I am. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so this next question, what do you do about the societal pressure at your age to have luxuries, kids, and a house? I mean, I think being in New York, it's a little bit different because I think being this age in New York feels a lot younger than in some other places. Like in Waco where I grew up, it feels a lot younger than in Waco. And maybe Waco's changed since I was there. I don't know. But I, I think that the age where people reach those milestones in New York is not necessarily always the same. I think you have to just realize you can't have everything. It's not a race. The person who gets it done first is not going to be necessarily the person who gets it done best. And best is different for different people. Yeah, I think that's a great take on it. And I do love that about New York as well. It's the first place where I looked at people who were in their late 30s, in their 40s, in their 60s. And I was like, oh my God, I want their life. I don't know. They just didn't feel as pressured to do the white picket fence thing as I felt when I was in the suburbs of the Bay Area. And this idea of taking things at your own time, like we're all kind of in our own journeys, right? And whether that's being single while everyone else is getting engaged or not having children when everyone else has children or everyone else is buying houses and you just don't, it is hard to see sometimes, but you kind of have to just take a step back and realize that your own journey is different from others. And like Hannah said, the best thing for you will be different from the best thing for someone else. I definitely have high school friends who have a house and it's gorgeous and have multiple kids and they're doing the thing. But I think about that for myself, even though that's what 22-year-old Cece wanted initially. And I'm like, would I be happy? Is that what me at 30, almost 32, is that what I want for myself? And the answer is no. So yeah, it can be hard to put other people aside. Like I bend so much to peer pressure, but things like therapy, like journaling, like really elucidating for yourself, like creating vision boards of what you want, not what of society tells you you want. I think those can be really, really good anchors. Totally. All right. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? Just to finish this up. I didn't tell Cece I was going to ask her that. I just decided I was. Man, I think the best advice I've ever gotten, it was probably related to breakups because I was chronically single for pretty much all of college and the beginning of law school. And being single for those years made me feel unlovable. And I really was like, something is fundamentally wrong with me such that I will never find anyone who loves me and I will have to bring value into a relationship, whether it's how I look or money or just something to the relationship because I viewed it as way more transactional. And I think the best advice I ever got when I was in that situation was that, yeah, you could view the world as this transactional system and so much of life 
and so much of society and so much of the people who try to be practical about life, they will say that that is how you do it. And I think all the dating advice, all the high value dating advice, they kind of try to espouse that as well. But the more you can realize that life is about so much more than the transactional relationships and is so much more about all of our experiences and that you can bring things to other people that aren't just valued in how you look or money or things like that, that's when your relationships and your life and your enjoyment of life flourish more. Enjoy the process rather than be overly focused on the destination, which I definitely was. I think it's great advice. What about you, Hannah? What's the best advice you've ever received? Don't ask questions that you don't want to know the answer to. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good one. I think it's good advice. I mean, so many people just upset themselves all the time. And it's like, sometimes you need to know things. But if you don't want to know, don't, don't know. Yeah, I can't argue with that. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next Thursday. Subscribe, review Hannah Stella on everything. And I'm Cece Shea on everything. This makes it easy. And yeah, we'll see you next time where we will be talking about body image, exercise, health, and wellness. See you then. Adios, muchachos. <laughs>